You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA, members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlock your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby award-winning best business podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95 plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Over the past couple of years, if you have bought or sold property, and by the way, I have done both, it has seemed like the normal rules of this transaction had just been tossed out the window. Home values in the U.S. increased by 7.2% since 2018, that's according to Zillow, and home sales hit their highest levels ever during the pandemic as millions of Americans look to shuffle their work-life routines in a space that could best accommodate their new normal. With those numbers in mind, today we are going to talk about buying property, specifically your first investment property. We have heard from so many of you lately who have some extra cash that you don't necessarily want to put into the stock market, but you do want to be able to put it toward an asset that can help secure your retirement, secure your future, and that will grow over time. And today's show is going to try to answer all the questions that you might have if you're just dipping your toe into this investment property C. Maybe you are looking to buy something as a long-term investment for an aging parent or a college student in your life. Maybe you are looking to snag something simple that you can rent out monthly or perhaps on Airbnb or VRBO or another short-term rental site, whatever you're looking for. We are going to focus our guide today for listeners who want something as affordable as possible because honestly, we should all be looking to find a bargain whether we live in a lower cost area of the country and $100,000 will be enough or whether we have to drop at least a half a million in order to find something decent. So where do we start? 
How do we finance a property? What are the pitfalls? Should we renovate? And what do we need to know about a mortgage, tax deductions, and more? Here to answer all of these questions with us today is Liz Faircloth. She is co-founder of the Real Estate Invest Her, that's Invest H-E-R community, a community that's now nearly 2 million women strong with more than 40 meetups across the U.S. and Canada. Liz is also the co-founder of the DeRosa Group, which is a company that she started in 2005 with her husband, Matt. And together, they own and control over a 1,000 units of residential and commercial assets along the East Coast. She is on a mission to transform lives through real estate. I'm so happy she could be with us today to share some of that transformational knowledge. Liz, welcome. Jean, thank you so much. Pleasure being here. Thank you so much for your time, too. Of course. All right. Tell me how you got your start. How did you get from one property to a thousand? (laughs) Overnight. No, I didn't. (laughs) So, you know, in terms of where we got our start, I was actually getting my master's degree in social work in Philadelphia. Wanted to be a therapist. That was my goal in life. Wanted to open my own shingle, if you will, and help people. And at the same time, my brother-in-law handed me Rich Dad, Poor Dad which is a very classic book that a lot of people that seem to get into investing in real estate have read, or it just turns their eyes to things they never thought about. So I read that as a 22-year-old at the time, and I'm like, hold on, this is stuff that I've never even thought about in terms of what's passive income. That means it makes money while I'm sleeping. Like, you know, all these things that i a little naive, but never even heard about or even thought about. My parents both very hardworking family and just you see a lot of like, you work really hard for your money. You trade your time for money. That is what you do. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm like, wow, this opened my eyes to a whole other avenue as well. So at the same time I started dating my husband, we're like, I said, we got to start going to these RIA meetings that are called our real estate investment club meetings, if you will. There's so many now. Um, and at the time in Philadelphia, it was called DIG, uh, Diversified Investors Group, I think it was called. Anyway, we spent a year of going to these courses and meetings and buying every course we could under the sun with all these different strategies. And so one of the suggestions is to go door knocking, literally go into a town that you want to invest in or buy a property and just go on, <laughs> knock on people's doors. And say, Are you interested in selling? You know, I think about that now. And it was ambitious of us, a little uh, bootstrapped of us, but we did it. And we did that a lot on the weekends. We also cold call. We actually cold called the folks that actually had vacancy. So that, you know, that's how you found property was 2004. So we didn't go to, you know, we didn't, we didn't do as much on the marketplace or any of those things now, but it was like, we called the foreign ads. And one gentleman, opened, you know, answered the phone. He's like, I don't, oh, you want to buy my building? We didn't know what the building was, but we said, can we talk to you? And this is one of the strategies they tell you. So can we meet? And, you, and we know you have a duplex because we looked into it. And he goes, actually, you know what? I think I'm done owning this building. Let's talk. So, and there's so many of those types of people, Gene, that are just called tired landlords. They're done with the tenant calls. They're done with the issues. They're done with maybe the changing policies in the community, and they want out. And so that was an opportunity for us to buy our first uh, duplex. And it was right outside of Philadelphia. So that was our first investment. And it was $30,000 we needed to buy it and to renovate it. Didn't need a ton, but it needed about $10,000 or so in investment which is in the world of investing, mm-hmm. not, um, not too bad. And uh, we needed about 20000 of the down payment. So my father lent us the money and we hit the ground running with our first deal. 
That's amazing. You know, like you, I'm sure, or maybe you don't because you live this every day, but I watch an awful lot of HGTV. Mm-hmm. I watch these shows where, you know, you buy them, yep. you flip them, you mm-hmm. reno. It seems like a very different world than 2005. How does somebody who wants to get started today actually do it when there's so much more knowledge and so many more people playing in these waters? No, that's very true. And I'm an educator by nature. So I always say in, in a lot of ways, you have to be it's almost like a financial planner. You, you would probably see this. Like if you go to a financial planner and said, okay, these are my financial goals, hopefully they wouldn't just throw out a product to you. They'd ask you more questions. They'd get to the nitty gritty of really what you're looking for. I'd say real estate investing is no different from the perspective of being clear on what you're looking to achieve. There's two major strategies, if you will, when you're investing in real estate. You can go down the active path. You're the one looking for the property, buying the property, and then putting the tenants in, if you will. The other strategy is called passively investing. In essence, you are investing with operators. So there's a person operating that property, the project itself, and then there's a person passively investing with that person. It's very common in our business. So you could be both, quite honestly. There are, I'm, I'm both. I'm passively investing in projects. I'm also an active investor. My point in saying that too, Gene, is people taking a step back and saying, what kind of return? You're investing in real estate to make money mm-hmm. and hopefully do good by people and make a difference because that's kind of what was in our heart to do too. But obviously, you know, investing is a vehicle to make money and to build your wealth. So the question then gets asked, in my opinion, is to say, okay, what am I doing this for? And what's the time frame I'm looking to do this? That's where you really want to assess. If you go down the passive side, you could be making 8 to 12% on your money. Is that good enough in a time horizon of five to seven years? Would that meet your goals? I don't know that, depending on where you are in your life. Is that 8 to 10% annually? Yeah, annually. Let's actually take a step back and talk about timing. I mean, we talk about not timing the market when we're talking about buying stocks. The housing market seems really frothy right now, right? I mean, there are stories about people waiving inspections and people buying sight unseen or at least buying without walking into the place. Is now a time when you should be looking at this? Is it regional or is it one of those times where you would say, hey, take six months and sit on your heels? It's a great question because we've lived through so many of the markets, right? Because like, you know, you think about the market crash. We had a number of properties at that time. As the world was getting over that crash, that was like one of the best times to buy, right? Relatively speaking. You know, COVID and what's been going on recently only increase the prices. Certain markets are hotter than others. Austin, Texas. I don't know if I'd ever buy a property there right now unless I had some insider scoop of someone, you know, where I can partner with. Like, that would be worrisome. I like markets that are up and coming because the key to, just a general key, whether you're passively or actively investing, is affordable housing. So where are most people going? You see a lot of people going to the Southeast or, you know, the South in general, It follows where the jobs go, where are corporations moving to, you know, and it's just simple stuff like that. So my point, though, is if there is an up and coming market that makes sense financially still now, yes, it might be a good time to buy that property. Are there markets that are overheated that don't make any sense? Yes. So I think a little bit of market regionalness does matter, but the overall landscape that's why knowing if you want to, how active and passive you want to be. Because right now I would, if I had money and I want to start making a, a 10% return, I would be passively investing with someone who is like on the boots on the ground, 
doing all the work, I can't compete with that. I mean, me personally can't even, I want to buy a property in my local community. I know I would need to find a partner to find the right deal because it's going to be overpriced for me for what we want to buy. Basically, what I'm hearing you say is if you are going to do this partnering with a local expert is a really good way to start. One of the first team members, I always say, Gene, is, is a real estate agent that's investor-friendly. Not all real estate agents are created equal. Some of them don't want to deal with investors. Or if they do, it's almost annoying. You know, oh, you want to buy your investment property? And then and they're kind of annoyed by it. They know you're going to try to, like, get the best price <laughs> or what have you. So I always say a real estate agent that's investor-friendly and that has even investment property themselves is a great first team member to have because they're going to help you whether it's now or you're setting the stage, right? Because right now, quite honestly, the time of year we are in is actually a great time to buy because everyone's busy with the holidays. Some of our best buildings were bought in November, December of the year because literally everyone's so distracted. Everyone's so busy with the holidays. They don't have their game on face. So this is time of year is actually some of the best time to buy. That's really interesting and really good advice. The other thing that struck me about your story, your entree into this market was how much time you spent learning, right? I think there are a lot of people, again, who turn on and they watch Good Bones and they think, Ugh, how hard can this be, right? Or Tark and Christina on their own programs now and think, oh, I could do this. But you took a year and you got educated. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about buying your first property. Hey, everybody, it's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills from making small talk that leaves a big impression to keeping your nerves in check while speaking to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Dive into the heart of crime with Foul Play Crime Series. Immerse yourself in the most perplexing cases where each twist and turn is more baffling than the last. With riveting storytelling and detailed analysis, Foul Play brings the unsolved and unexplained to life captivating your imagination. Listen to Foul Play Crime Series now, where every story is a puzzle waiting to be solved. I am talking with Liz Faircloth. We're discussing all things real estate investing. Let's take us through it, right? We are going to buy our very first property. Let's just say we've decided we'll be active on this one. All right, we're going to be the one. And if you decide you want to be passive, I think having the active information is still really good. So how do we find a property? There's two things you want to think about between strategy and market. Market is critical, but your strategy is going to dictate which market you go into, meaning you want to buy a short-term rental. Everyone wants to buy a short-term rental. And I say that because it can be very lucrative. 
you know, and I don't own any short-term rentals, so I'm not even going to speak to that strategy because I'm a long-term rental owner. That's what we've done. But obviously you can't buy a vacation rental in an area that's not going to need a vacation rental, right? So again, think of strategy and market together and as you assess where you need to go. So let's go down the strategy of that you want a classic buy and hold duplex. I'm going to use duplex because that's my I'm multifamily and I'm going to be able to use that to the best of my ability. So if that's the strategy, right? Think of that as your kind of like active strategy. Then the question becomes what market makes sense for that property to exist, not only exist, but to get at a good price and that you're not overpaying. And I always say find from a market perspective, find the hottest market, literally Google hottest markets in the United States, then take those markets and start to say what up and coming communities or start to do the research within an hour to an hour and a half radius of that hot market, because there's so much fruitfulness in that exercise. For example, we invest in a, a town called Lancaster, Pennsylvania, about an hour and a half-ish, right, from Philadelphia, depending on traffic and what's happening in Philadelphia. But that say that's a sub-market, right? If you Googled hottest markets in the United States, Lancaster, Pennsylvania would not come up as a hot, hot market. Then you start to look at the job market there, you know, strong job market. Uh, is there mass transportation? Great, great thing to see in a market, right? Are jobs coming? Are they going? Are there more renters or are there more homeowners? Is there a balance with that? Do you want to see more renters versus homeowners or what do you want to see? I like to see in those kinds of markets, I like to see both. For example, we got our start in Trenton, New Jersey. So if you said, okay, what's the balance of homeownership and renters? Renters was almost like, I'd say, and I don't have a statistic, but I'd say seven out of 10 people were renters. That shows you there's not as much of that homeownership. So homeownership, what does that tell you? There's people that have the homeowner associations, there's care, there's concern, not that renters don't care, but there is that a level of ownership. So in a lot of ways, we didn't think of that when we were buying and doing a lot of things early on. But in the Lancaster area, I don't know the exact percentage, but Lancaster proper is a little city, it's a little town. And right. um, I see both. We know that there's a strong presence of both. And so I don't know if it's 50-50, but it's definitely more than when we, I see in Trenton, New Jersey. I think that's some very good guidance on how to find an area in mm -hmm. which to buy. Let's look mm -hmm. outside, an hour to an hour and a half outside the hot areas. Now let's talk about financing this transaction. How much of a down payment do you need to make on an investment property? So if you're going to go down the path of like a traditional bank, you're going to work with a traditional bank and not do this creatively. So we'll put that aside. But if you're going to go down that path, typically, you know, they require 25% down payment. So it's more than the amount that you'd have to put down. I mean, you can you can get into a primary home sure. with 3%. All right. And that's because it's more risky, right? They know this is not the house you're living in and you have to come up with renters and there's a lot more variability in your being able to make the payments. Do they look at your personal credit? Yes. Typically, yes. Because you're personally guaranteeing it. You're personally guaranteeing the loan, even if you buy it, you know, with an entity. So yes, they're going to look at that personal credit as kind of key to your buying power, if you will. Okay. All right. And so do you need typically good to excellent credit? Yes. Absolutely. Okay. What kind of institutions are more likely to lend you the money for these things? I know there's creative financing. And mm -hmm. for those people who are listening, creative financing that Liz is talking about is when you partner with other people in the real estate community yes. and they become the lender. But exactly. 
Right now, let's talk about getting our money from a bank. bank. What kind of bank or credit union is more likely to work with you on this? Not all of them will lend for investment properties, correct? Correct. So the large institutions, your Wells Fargo's, your Banks of America, they're not going to go down the investment property angle as much. They're just not going to be as open to that. In our experiences, it's been more of the small community banks. It's really the banks that have a a stake in the community, like that local community. They're not huge. They probably have maybe eight to 10 branches or even less. Uh, Credit unions tend to be very favorable to investment properties. And uh, you have to talk to these folks before you have a project underway. Just a quick tip, because things move so fast now that that great property that your agent just brought you, and then you have to call the lender, it's not going to be around. Well, does that mean that you need some sort of pre-approval or pre-qualification? The best thing to do is not so much a pre-qualification in this form, but I think knowing what the criteria is. What do they need from you in place to begin the process? The other thing that they often ask these community banks is your personal financial statement. In a fancy way, it's really your balance sheet. What is your income? What are your expenses? They're going to want that filled out like in an Excel form. That's what they required all the time from us. And then regardless of where you are on that, you need to have a sense of that for your personal life, income and expenses. And in terms of the return that you should be looking to get, right? Let's say I'm looking at an investment property. I'm looking at a duplex, which is where you started. How much do I need to be able to rent it out for in order to make paying a particular sum worth my while. Is there a formula that you rely on? You have your income and your expenses, right? So obviously you need to really do good due diligence of knowing what the expenses of a property is. And I wanna just say this really quickly that most owners selling a property are not going to always tell you everything and every problem that's happening with that property. So my point in saying that is to really do a good job of due diligence prior to buying, or even as you're doing your due diligence process, of what the expenses are and what the potential income is. Typically, Gene, most properties are mom and pop owned, meaning it's just someone who's owned the property for a while and the rents are below market. So one of the best things you can do in the market that you've chosen is to get a sense of what are the rents at market. And so that's where the opportunity is. So once you know your income or potential income, and your expenses, you know, a good goal for us is that you're making at least two to $300 a door after you've paid your mortgage, after all the expenses are taken care of, you're actually making a cash flow on that property. Two to $300 a door per month, right? Yep. Per rental cycle. So if you have a duplex, that would be four to $600 per month profit. Yeah, that would be great. That would be like okay. really a solid project. Some people buy properties, Gene, that they're losing money every month but they feel like it's in such a great market, they're going to appreciate, the property's going to appreciate. And so it's a very long-term play for them. We've never been those types of investors. We've always kind of bought more on cash flow. Depending on how nice the area is, the market is, there's two things at play, cash flow and appreciation. You can buy a property and then sell it, and it's the same that you just bought it five years ago. Yeah, That's not appreciation. So ideal is those sub-markets that are up and coming, that, you know, there's a draw from jobs and transit and those solid things, you're going to see a mix of both. You want cash flow and you have that appreciation piece so that in three years, five years, 10 years, or it's a legacy property to give to your kids, 
it will have gone up in value. Two more pieces of tactical information I want to get. You mentioned buying through an entity. Should you be buying not personally, but through an LLC? Yeah, the LLC perspective. So when people get started, the financing, because it's all connected, Gene, quite honestly, the financing is pre-created of what you're actually buying a property through. So when you buy it in your name, sometimes the financing is even much more advantageous, right? You can get 3% down on a property you're living in and renovating. It's just, there's a lot of pieces there. But if you're purely buying this as an investment property, I'm a very big fan of, without being an attorney myself, putting it in into an LLC, putting the property into an entity so you're protected. Protected against liability? You got it. So you can get all the insurance you need. Obviously, you get the right insurance for an investment property. But somebody slips and falls on your front steps, they can't take down your whole personal financial life because it's in an LLC, you a limited it. liability company. Okay, I get that. Two final questions. First of all, what are the biggest mistakes that you've seen people making as they've entered this marketplace? Top three top three mistakes that you've seen people making? People are going into buying property as though they're buying their home. So they're using emotion and they're not thinking in a business frame of mind. So I think that's the biggest thing. When people are waiving inspections and just throwing money at different properties, it just makes no sense, in my opinion. So it's better to be more conservative and make sure the numbers work and not be moved by the best deal. The best deal is there's always properties to be had. There's always opportunities to be had. There's no best deal. Being able to walk away from investment properties when the offer is not accepted is the best thing you can do in this marketplace. And we've done that multiple times. And often the seller comes back and says, you know what, that other person fell through. Are you still interested in that property? So you have to buy right and you have to buy basis your numbers. I'd say a great resource too as you're getting into this. The analysis of this when you start looking at properties can get a little overwhelming of like not missing numbers. Biggest mistake people make is you miss expenses that are there and that you just didn't know are going to be expenses. There's one-time expenses and there's ongoing expenses. So using calculators, like, you know, user-friendly calculators, I know Bigger Pockets has some very, very helpful, not overwhelming spreadsheets because I'm not a big spreadsheet person. I need things kind of focused and kind of all at your fingertips. And they have some wonderful calculators, if you will. That's fantastic. And then last question, any tips or tricks that you've learned along the way that you think give you the upper hand in your market that maybe our listeners can glom onto? Yeah, when you're in any market, even if you're not physically there every day, having local contacts, local movers and shakers in that community, your accountant, your attorney, the local banker, being in communication with these people, not when you need something, but when you have a, like an ongoing relationship building perspective. So if you want to buy a property that might be by a family member, if you will, and you go there all the time, you're like, this is a great market. I see things happening here. Start building those relationships now before a property comes in. Start laying the seeds. Everyone wants a property. Everyone wants to make a million overnight or just put their money to work. Building relationships will differentiate you in this marketplace, not when it's convenient, not when you need something, but really caring about people and really building that kind of ongoing connection. And just call that lender. Lenders, but an accountant, an attorney are your three, and a real estate agent. You can't go wrong. Start building relationships with those four people that know investment property in that market and create a monthly touch point with them. How you doing? What's going on with you? How's it going? What can I do for you? 
not when you need something. I think that's one of the best ways we grew our business and got more properties shown to us, if you will. I think that's just general, generally good career yep. advice. Build the relationships, not when you need something, but build them because you're building them and they'll be there and they'll pay off down the road. Liz Faircloth, thank you so much for doing this with me today. I appreciate it. And you've given us so much to chew on. Thank you so much for having me, Jean. I really appreciate it. And we'll be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. Before we move into our mailbag, I want to remind everyone that Her Money is supported by BCU, a credit union providing a wide array of financial products and services for its members. If you are currently exploring the auto market, BCU offers financing and refinancing options, as well as an exclusive auto buying service to save you time and money. You can learn more about that at bcu.org. And I happen to know that they are in the real estate investing market as well. And Her Money's Catherine Tuggle is joining me now. Hey, Catherine. Hey there, Jean. So I know that this show was inspired a little bit, at least by your life, that you are thinking of dipping your toe into the world of real estate investing. Yeah, I had been thinking about it often, actually. A funny thing happened in New York during the pandemic, which was that a lot of people found their studio apartments and one bedrooms to a certain extent to just be incredibly isolating. And a lot of studios kind of flooded the market. So there were, in some cases, $200,000 differences in the cost of studios pre-pandemic versus during the pandemic. So it was something that I definitely considered, particularly looking in areas in the West Village down near NYU, where you're pretty much guaranteed to have a steady stream of renters through the door. So yeah, I, I put some boots on the ground. I saw probably 10 to 15 places, never actually pulled the trigger on anything. One apartment I actually loved, but the building allowed smoking and the whole place smelled like an ashtray. And a friend of mine who was helping me look said, you should never ever buy any place that you wouldn't want to live yourself. And I think that that's the rule of thumb that I've been keeping in mind. And I still haven't found anything, so maybe I'm a little too picky, but I'm still keeping an eye out. I think it's such an interesting way to build a supplemental income stream. So you knew I grew up in a lot of college towns. And I can't tell you the number of, they were largely friends of my parents who were professors and just people who lived in the towns in Madison, Wisconsin, in Bloomington, Indiana, that bought houses near campus, knowing they would always be able to rent these properties out or multifamilies near campus, knowing they would always be able to rent them out, if not to students, then to professors or graduate students who are coming into the community. And I know a lot of people who've retired on that money. It's not without work, but you can hire managers who can help you maintain properties. You can hire people who keep an eye on them if you decide that you're going to move out of the community. I know that, as we've said, the world of HGTV has made this look very glamorous and to some extent unaffordable 
depending on the HGTV show that you're watching. But I do think it's an option that's available to more people than they might think. They might just have to get educated and start looking at neighborhoods that they had not necessarily explored before. Yeah, absolutely. So many of us think of real estate as that big milestone when we buy a home for ourselves, a primary home, and it is. But something smaller can also be an incredible investment. And I think I've owned my apartment now for two years. And I think that that process gave me wings. It gave me encouragement that it's not that hard to enter into the ultimate hashtag adulting realm where you own property. And if I can own one, then well, maybe I can own another one. So, Or maybe you could own 23. We will see. We will see. Maybe I'll rent to you one day, Jean. (laughs) There we go. Sounds good to me. Let's take some questions. Our first question today comes to us from Kara. She writes, hi, Jean. My husband and I have an adorable seven-year-old grandson for whom we would like to start a college fund. He lives with his other grandma, my husband's ex-wife, who has full custody. The mom, my husband's daughter, is involved in his life, but the father is out of the picture. We want to find a plan that is easy for friends and family to contribute to while we retain control of the funds and eventual distributions. I remember the college backer episode you did with Abby Chow a few years ago. I'm wondering if this is still a program you'd recommend or if there might be better options out there. Thank you for any advice you can offer. I love the podcast and everything you do. Kara, thank you so much for the question. And I think actually you are onto something. There are many, many people who have written to us with similar questions who want to know how they can help provide college for a child that they care about, but also maintain some control over the money. I would suggest you just open a 529 college savings account. And You can do this in the state in which you live, and maybe you'll be able to get a tax deduction for making a contribution. You can also open a 529 that belongs to another state if that is your preference. You can research 529s at savingforcollege.com. They rank 529s based on a star system, so you can tell which of the many 529s in this country, because every state has at least one, some have many accounts, perform better than others in terms of both their investments and their fees. And the rub on grandparent-owned 529s used to be that it could in some way sabotage your student's ability to get financial aid in the future. That if once the college found out that a grandparent-owned 529 existed, and you would have to disclose that on the FAFSA or you would the college would learn about it as you used the money, it could make a dent in the amount of financial aid that a student received. There are changes now coming to the FAFSA where students no longer have to disclose cash support. And it means that effective for the school year beginning in 2024, 2025, which I know is a little bit down the road, Grandparent-owned 529s will no longer impact a student's ability to receive need-based aid. We're talking about a seven-year-old here, so we're talking way past 2024, 2025. 
I think this is a terrific way to go. And the other thing that is very, very easy is that all you have to do is tell friends and other family members that this account exists and they can make a contribution to that account as well. So good luck. Good luck to your grandchild. Again, thanks for doing this and thanks for writing. Yeah. Great advice, Jean. And thanks so much for writing to us. Your grandson is very lucky indeed to have so many people in his life who love him. Our next question comes to us from a couple, Alicia and Eric. They write, Dear Jean, my husband and I will turn 50 this year. We are proud of our financial health and look forward to our future together. We realize we're hitting our stride in terms of our earning potential, and we're planning for eventual retirement from 30 plus years in education. Here's some information for you to consider before we pose our questions. We have no children or pets. We're public high school English teachers who plan to retire in July of 2027. When we retire, our annual pensions are estimated to be $60,000 a year each. Our annual salary with coaching stipends is approximately $100,000 each. We have $34,000 in our savings for emergencies. We have $5,000 in our checking. We tutor and coach as side hustles to provide us with fun money. We have no credit card debt or car payments. We'll pay off our mortgage of $2,400 a month in May of 2024. We have $7,000 in a brokerage account, and we contribute $200 monthly. We each have approximately $285,000 in our 403Bs for a total of $570,000, and we each contribute $1,700 a month to our own accounts. We had MedFlex accounts and good insurance to cover any reasonable health and expenses. We have $34,000 in Fulton stock, which has been gifted to us over the years from a parent. We never touch it, and sometimes our parent adds to it, but we act like it doesn't exist and we plan to use it to help our parent as he ages. We afford our monthly expenses and a vacation every year. As we imagine our future, we hope to retire from teaching at 55, but work in another capacity to supplement our pensions until we're 67 or older. Also, we want to move out of New Jersey to somewhere with a lower cost of living, perhaps Delaware. So here's our question. During the three years between May of 2024, when we pay off our mortgage and July of 2027, when we retire, what would you do with the money we save? Do you have any more suggestions for us that might put us in the best possible position for this next phase of our lives? Thank you so much. Well, first of all, congratulations. I mean, clearly you guys have it all together. I think this looks wonderful. I love that you've got a separate category for fun money. Catherine and I were both smiling when she read that line. I think that you should look at long-term care costs. When I look at your whole picture, I wonder what happens if one of you were to get injured or ill. And I think this is my own scenario coloring my answer to this question. So Catherine, I'm interested in your answer as well. But you all know I recently moved to Philadelphia. My husband and I keep looking at each other and saying we could not have gotten here fast enough. And the reason that we could not have gotten here fast enough is because my stepdad is having a hard time. And we're so happy to be able to be here to support him and my mom and take them to doctors and just 
do things for them because at this point in their 80s, they need some help and it's a pleasure. When you write that you have no children, of course you will do these things for each other, but sometimes you need help. You may need an aide, you may need a driver, you may need to be able to pay for additional care. And so I'd like to see you put some money aside for that. I'd like to see you look into maybe a small long-term care policy or a longevity annuity that would provide for some sort of long-term care when you're in your 80s and you might need that additional help. If that's not an area of your finances that you've explored because you've checked off so many of the other boxes, I think that's where I would look. Catherine, what do you think? Am I just blinded by this period in my own life? I actually think that's great advice, Jean. And what you said about needing a driver or just a companion, all of those hourly costs in retirement add up. And this is to say nothing of the fact that I think everyone should have a fund for this, whether or not you have children, because you know, there's no guarantee that your children are going to live in the same state as you. And this is something I think about all the time with my parents in Birmingham. They are an hour from their doctors and I'm not there. So having a cushion for medical expenses or whatever you want that will make you feel more secure is a great idea. So let us know how that sits, Alicia, and if you were thinking that maybe we would take this in a different direction, we are absolutely happy to revisit it again, but that's where I would go. Thanks so much, Catherine. Thank you, Jean. And in today's Thrive, the psychology of confidence and how to build it. We've all come across those special people who ooze natural confidence and strength. You may have previously envied their ability to work a room and wonder how you could build your confidence to that same level. And the truth is it takes practice and it comes from investing in ourselves. This week at Hermione, we checked in with mental health experts on how we can all build our confidence step-by-step. First, it's important to understand why confidence matters. Our confidence reminds us that not only can we make goals, we can also meet them and we can trust ourselves. Confidence helps when things don't turn out as expected. When failure or mistakes happen, confident people are more likely to look at the situation positively, learn from their mistakes, and move forward. This ability to adapt to setbacks is everything. So how do we build it? Start by investing in your natural skills. Do you have a knack for interior design? Maybe you're an amazing chef or a talented writer. To build confidence, start honing in on your innate skills and work to improve them. This could mean taking a class, investing in a coach, opening up a side hustle, or other activities that challenge your skill set. Next, track what's going well. As humans, we tend to zero in on our shortcomings rather than celebrating our achievements. Also, we're often too critical of what can be considered a win. While most of us would say getting a raise is a biggie, we might also be tempted to say that making it through a week without hitting snooze is insignificant. But you know what? That's impressive 
too. That's why it's important to track all of your accomplishments, no matter how large or small, so that you have data points that you can use to build your self-esteem. And lastly, rephrase your self-talk. All day, every day, we have an inner dialogue running. Take a hard look at how you're speaking to yourself. If you notice yourself using scolding or overly critical language, try to switch up your repertoire to encouraging and life-affirming phrases. You got this. Thank you to Liz Faircloth for walking us through what real estate investing can look like when you're just getting started. I hope that our listeners who've been considering starting a journey into property ownership are encouraged to take that next step. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.